0: Welcome to episode number 67 of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. Reformation Roundtable is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Centralia, Washington. The following audio is from our Lord's Day worship service that took place on October 3rd, 2021. During this audio, we get to hear the preaching of Pastor Devin Smith. He's the associate pastor of Reformation Covenant Church in Oregon City, Oregon, I hope you enjoy the sermon, I hope you enjoy listening in on what Covenant Renewal worship sounds like, and I hope you join us for Lord's Day worship at Christ Covenant Church. Thanks very much for listening, and enjoy the sermon. Our meditation in preparation for worship this morning comes from Psalm 128. It's verses 1 through 4. Hear the word of the Lord. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands, you shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we are here to fear you in love and adoration. We are seeking your blessing and long to walk in your ways. Teach us how today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please rise with me as we worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also to you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will today, Lord, is that we would give you thanks, that we would sing praises to your name as it it is most high. We are here this morning to declare your steadfast love and your faithfulness. We use guitars and pianos and voices and one day many varied instruments, all of these intertwined with one goal of praising you and bringing your name glory. Thank you for giving us gladness by the work that you have accomplished. Thank you for giving us the joy by the works of your hands. Cause us to not be as the stupid who see your mighty works and refuse to give you glory for your mighty deeds. Cause us to worship you this morning in the beauty of holiness. We ask you and thank you for all these things in the name of Jesus, who reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. And amen. amen. Turn with me and your contus to our first song, number 169. It's good to thank the Lord. In the song we just sang, there's a line uh, that my kids love to sing. And you probably already know what line it is. It goes, fools won't be, sh- fools won't be shown. The stupid can't accept this truth to him unknown. My kids always get a kick out of that line because the word stupid is a word we don't use a lot in our house. But when the Bible uses it, and it does in Psalm 92, well, all bets are off. No one gets to be holier than the Bible. But what is it that fools won't be shown and the stupid can't accept? It's the deeds of the Lord. It's his mighty works his great doings, and his deep thoughts. To us, God's people, his deeds make us glad and they bring us joy. But for the wicked, these works cause them to reject them outright, no matter how obvious it is that they have come from God. The next line in Psalm 92, which corresponds with verse 7, it's also apropos. It says, Though sinners grow like weeds, ill-doers blossom may. They're doomed to be destroyed. You, Lord, exalted, stay. In both of these sections, there is an antithesis between the work of God and the faith or the unbelief of man. God does amazing things, and man can either submit to this fact in joy and gladness or rage against it as a fool. In our Bible reading challenge last week, we found ourselves in Exodus chapter 9. In this section, God is speaking to Pharaoh through Moses, and he is about to unleash the seventh plague. He was saving something special for the seventh one. God told Moses to say this. He says, he's, uh, Moses is talking to Pharaoh, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time, I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. So God tells Pharaoh, through Moses, in essence, I could have wiped you all out with a plague if I wanted to, but I would rather raise you up so that I might show my power as I cast you back down in the face of your supposed might and before my people. So, think about the Israelites, all the pain, the heartache, the slavery, the murder of their children that our people had to endure under the cruel hand of Pharaoh. Think about all that they had to endure. All of that was a part of God's plan to bring the wicked's plans to nothing. Later in chapter 10, Pharaoh's counselors tell him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not understand that Egypt is ruined? Pharaoh just wasn't getting the message. God had taken the proud and vain nation of Egypt and the proud and vain ruler, Pharaoh, and cast them from their lofty place to show his glory throughout the land. So, how does that relate to us? Well, As we experience the works of God each day, let us remember to take joy in them, knowing full well that God always has a plan in every work He does. And that plan is opposing the proud and exalting the humble. So this reminds us of our need to confess our sins. So as you're able, will you kneel before the Lord with me? Scripture says in Psalm 130, verses 1 through 3, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Let's confess our sin in prayer. Gracious Father, we know that we have acted as the fool, as the atheist, as the stupid, when we see your glorious works and choose not to accept them, or to take joy in them, or to be filled with awe and admiration by them. Please forgive us for our unbelief. We know that judgment must begin in the house of God, and therefore we confess to you our sins of laziness, of pride, of lust, of wasting the precious time you have given us on earth. We confess our willingness to go with the crowd and fear man rather than you. We confess our unwillingness to be inconvenienced for the sake of the gospel. Please, Lord, forgive us for these sins we ask. We confess our own individual sins to you now, in Selah. We ask all of these things in the name of Jesus and amen. Amen. Please rise for the assurance of pardon. Scripture also says in Psalm 130, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. People of God, hear the good news. Your sins are forgiven through Christ. Good morning. We're going to be
1: reading from Jeremiah chapter 1. Beginning in verse 13, we'll read through to the end of the chapter. Hear God's word. And the word of the Lord came to me a second time, saying, What do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot, and it is facing away from the north. Then the Lord said to me, Out of the north calamity shall break forth on all the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I am calling all the families of the kingdoms of the north, says the Lord. They shall come, and each one set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem, against all its walls all around, and against all the cities of Judah. I will utter my judgments against them concerning all their wickedness, because they have forsaken me, burned incense to other gods, and worshipped the works of their own hands. Therefore, prepare yourself and arise, and speak to them all that I command you. Do not be dismayed before their faces, lest I dismay you before them. For behold, I have made you this day a fortified city and an iron pillar, and bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, against its princes, against its priests, and against the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you. For I am with you, says the Lord, to deliver you. The word of the Lord.
0: Thanks Thanks be God.
1: God. You may be seated. Well, it is good to be here with you, and I just want to extend, before we begin, um, greetings from Reformation Covenant Church, Oregon City, and... Um, We do pray for our sister churches, we are mindful of you, we ask that you continue to send us updates of how things are going here, and um, we we are thankful that the Lord continues to meet in this place and to gather a people for his name. Our concern this morning is with this prophet Jeremiah. He was a man who lived in a time of decline. We have that in common with him, sadly. He was born in a time when some babies were being offered by fire to Molech. We also have that in common with him. He was of a priestly family from a village just north of Jerusalem. Jeremiah was there, probably only a boy, at the time when good King Josiah radically began to turn away from idol worship and the neglect of the Word of God. So Josiah was turning the people away. He was attempting to turn the people back towards God. Jeremiah was there on that fateful day when they discovered the law of God in the temple. He was probably just a young man. And it was probably right around this time that the Lord called Jeremiah to be a prophet. Today we read this passage, and I hope it will be an encouragement to you. I know it is to me. The Lord is asking Jeremiah to do something very difficult and even impossible. He asked him to live in such a way that his life and conduct supported the message that he was being called to deliver. To live in such a way to support the ministry of the Word of God. And we live here in the Pacific Northwest in 2021. There are undoubtedly a good many things That need to happen in this place. None more important than the hearing and believing and receiving of the word of God. Nothing is more urgent in Washington at this time than that the message of God's word be clearly and faithfully proclaimed and believed upon and testified to. But it will require a certain kind of person to do it. And that is a concern of our text before us. I picked the passage here in Jeremiah chapter 1 that I believe helps us to understand the prophetic stance of Jeremiah very well. In our church, we are going through the prophets. Our senior pastor is working through Ezekiel and Daniel, and I'm working through Jeremiah, and we're kind of looking at how the interplay of Jeremiah, who's there in Judea, while people have been shipped off, they're being shipped off to, in exile, and he is there, and he's watching the deterioration of his home. And our senior pastor is looking at it from the position of those in exile. And this passage helps us to understand this man very well and what it is that drove him and, and strengthened him and encouraged him. That God, at the very beginning, gives him a stance, a way of life, a way of thinking about himself and how he is to be in his culture. We're familiar, I think, perhaps with some of the other language that's here in chapter 1. These are things maybe I I didn't read here. We have this encounter which reminds us, uh, perhaps, of um, an an encounter between Moses and the Lord. Jeremiah says to God, you'll hear in this an echo of Moses I don't know how to speak. I'm only a youth. I don't know what to say. God reassures him by touching his mouth and putting his own words in Jeremiah's mouth. And having equipped him, the Lord charges Jeremiah with an awesome task. Listen to this. Listen to this charge that he gives to him. This is in verses 9 and 10. Behold, I've put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up, to break down, to destroy, to overthrow, to build, and to plant. In God's estimation, the prophet is above the king because he carries with him God's own decrees. He sits in council with the Lord himself and comes onto the earth to execute the decrees of the Lord. This is why the centerpiece of the book of Kings, First and Second Kings, is not some super king or it's not some great king. It is the prophets, Elijah and Elisha. They sit at the center of that book and are the turning point of that book. The prophets are figures upon whom that whole story turns. They remind us that it is the decrees of the Lord that matter in all decisions. The law of the Lord is what matters in terms of justice. And it is the consolation of the Lord that matters in terms of hope and renewal. Surely Jeremiah has been summoned to an awesome task. Higher even than Josiah. Higher than Jehoiakim higher even than Nebuchadnezzar, the king of kings. He will raise up these men, send them into exile, slaughter their sons, tear down their kingdoms. And God reveals to him the decree, this, this boiling pot facing from the north. In other words, sitting there right at the spot where armies always invade Jerusalem, from the north, You see, Jerusalem is set on all sides with ravines, deep ravines, and all the armies, every time they would attack Jerusalem, it's always from the north. God reveals to him this decree, people will come from the north, they will set up thrones at the entrance to Jerusalem against its walls, and through them the Lord would declare his judgments upon Jerusalem and upon all the surrounding cities of Judah, because they have forsaken the Lord. One of the things that you need to understand about the prophet Jeremiah, perhaps maybe in distinction from from the time of Elijah and Elisha, from the times of Isaiah, is that the decree of judgment in Jeremiah is not something that is up in the air. It's not something that if they repent, God will withdraw. This decree of judgment is something that stands. It is determined, from the time of Manasseh, God has determined that he is going to execute this decree of judgment against Jerusalem and exile of his people. There are still many ways in which God's people can find mercy and relief and respite in the midst of judgment. Jeremiah is going to have things to say about that. There's still hope. God is still going to preserve a remnant in the midst of this, but this decree of judgment is certain. It is certain. And that's the context in which Jeremiah is called to action in our text. See, in our text, the Lord gives Jeremiah three things to do. There's actually four, but two of them kind of go together. One of them is just stand up and do this, this other thing. There's three things he must do if his life is to commend the message that he is speaking. If he is to be a useful man of God at this time, in history, and bear fruit. And I want to just look at these three commands in turn. So we're not going to break down all of this text from verses 13 to the end. I want us to focus our attention here um, specifically in verse 17. Verse 17, where these three commands are found. This first one is simply, it's translated here in our text, Therefore, prepare yourself and, and arise, prepare yourself. Literally, it reads in the original, gird up your loins, Jeremiah, gird up, or gird up your loins. I would imagine that for some of you, that's an expression you're familiar with from other passages of scripture. It's found, for instance, in 1 Kings 18, Elijah, after the, the battle with the, the prophets of Baal on Mount, Mount Carmel, it says he gird up his loins and ran ahead of the chariot of Ahab off of the mountain. He girded up his garment. It's found in Job several times. This is an interesting couple of uh, sections. God speaking to Job and challenging him, saying, Job, you want to face with me? You want to call my word and my providence into question? Gird up your loins and stand before me. He says that to him twice. In other words, prepare for action. Be ready to go. This is not going to be easy, what you're about to face. So, this was a common practice, girding up the loins of men in the ancient world. They're wearing robes. You cannot run in robes. Okay, so what they would do is they would simply tie them in a knot so that they look more like sweatpants or something which they were able to move quickly and to be ready for action. And that's the idea. Get ready for action. This is an idea that's going to show up a number of other times in scripture. First Peter chapter one, Peter uh, gets even more specific. He says, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober. Rest your hope fully upon the grace to be rev- brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Gird up the loins of your mind. Now Peter here, if you um, not to move too far away from Jeremiah, but Peter is using Exodus language. He does this a number of times throughout First Peter. It's a theme I don't have time to develop here. But I believe that also, as well with our text, this is a reference back to Moses and to the Exodus which was the first in Scripture, this first moment of girding up the loins. You see, in Exodus chapter 12, the people of God, at their being called out of slavery, every man among them was told at the Passover, on the night of Passover, to gird up their loins. They were also commanded to have a staff with them, sandals on their feet. They were called to be ready. Be ready to go. Be ready to move. It's time for action. They were called to be like Lot. They are called to leave and not look back. There's nothing for you here. Be ready to go. And as Peter says, "There, set your hope fully on the grace to be revealed." I think this is an important moment, an image that the Lord wants to impress in Jeremiah. His moment, this moment of life for him right now. You see, the Lord doesn't say to him how long his loins are going to be girded. How long does he have to have this disposition? Apparently, it will be for his whole life. Jeremiah, from this time on, be ready for action. Just, just hand your life over completely to this affair. This is the matter that I am putting in front of you all of your days. This is the reason why, and we, we should mention in Jeremiah chapter 16, the Lord would forbid Jeremiah from taking a wife. That's not the life for you. You are called to something else. This present distress that you're living through is going to make a life of domestic bliss impossible for you, Jeremiah. You're being called to hardship. You need to prepare. This is how God sometimes handles his prophets. He handles them roughly sometimes. I'm reminded of Hosea, who was, who was called to marry a wife of harlotry, to be a living parable to God's people of their relationship to the Lord. I'm reminded of Ezekiel, who would be told for over a year to lie on one side of his body, to perform this dramatic act as a sign to the people of God. Daniel was pulled from his parents at a young age. Painful. But he was pulled from them to serve the Lord in Babylon. Discomfort. The men of God experienced great discomfort in their service to God. To become a prophet was to be called to be ready to do anything. You just don't know what it is that the Lord is going to call you to do. I'm reminded of, now we might be thinking at this point, and this would not be the wrong thing to be thinking. I'm not Jeremiah. I'm not a prophet. Well, that's true, but often God calls any number of his people to difficult circumstances. Jeremiah is enigmatic of a type of man living in a difficult time who is called to take up the word of God and not be ashamed of it. And that's a calling that can extend to any of God's people at any time. We don't know what it is that we will face. And we don't know what cost we will face for just simply holding to the word of God and testifying of the truth. Jesus prepared his disciples for difficult days that faced them right there in the context of the first century. What was about to come upon the land of Israel was horrific. And they were called to a certain mindset of preparation. It was not just the apostles that were called to this. He says, stay dressed for action. Literally, gird up your loins and keep them girded. Keep your lamps burning. Be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. It's in Luke chapter 12. And you remember that the early disciples would, be needed, uh, would, would need to be ready at a moment's notice to leave their homes as soon as the Roman armies advance. Jesus prepared them. He says, don't even, don't even go and get your coat. Be ready to go. History tells us that there was a vast migration of Christians right out of Judea and into a place across the Jordan River. It's a town called Pella. They left their homes. They left their property, their relatives. They followed their master's instructions. They girded up their loins and they kept their lamps burning. Because he had prepared them for this, they were ready. You are not promised an easy life, my friends. You are promised eternal life. But you're not promised an easy life. Now, when I was young, the way in which this type of mindset was pressed upon us was in regard to the rapture. I grew up in a four-square church, and I did not think I was going to make it past about 25. I thought, surely I'm going to just fly off into the sky at some point. And it was pressed upon me to always just be ready. To, you're just, just going to be gone. You're going to be there one moment, and you're just going to be suddenly be flying through the sky. And I think this was, of course, perhaps misguided because the idea of girding up your loins, right? So I'm not, I'm not saying that they were trying to apply that, uh, that passage in, in that regard, but um, there was a sense in which I wanted to be prepared and to be ready and to have my loins girded. But the call of this passage, and I believe the call of the New Testament, is not to gird up our loins and be ready to just fly off the earth. It is a call to be ready for action in this world. To testify to the truth in uncomfortable circumstances where people don't want to hear it. And to be called to build things that people don't want to see built. But it's for the good. And sometimes to tear things down that need to be torn down. So we're called also to have our loins girded for action. Now disappointment comes, you see, when you are expecting comfort, but you find trouble. Has it ever happened to, deal, to you? You sit down with for a nice meal with your family, and the music is playing, and a uh, bottle of wine is open, and your family's all there, and you're rejoicing together, and there's a, at the door, and you're like, oh, my word. Okay. And you get up and there's some, something that has to take your attention away from that and you're disappointed by that because you had this expectation that you were about to sit down to a nice evening or you get a phone call and there's something going on at the church and there's something... Well, your expectations will often determine your level of comfort and what you see and how you respond to the trouble at hand. You see, I think we need to live always in this world with such an expectation that trouble is coming. Trouble is coming. Paul addressed the Corinthians in an interesting way. There was a point, a time, where he's looking at them. This is in, in 1 Corinthians. He's looking at them, and he's seeing a mindset and a disposition. He doesn't think it's helpful. It's not going to be helpful to them. It's leading them into a certain kind of... Um, uh, ease and, and comfort and way of thinking about their lives that is problematic. It's causing all kinds of problems in this church. And he speaks to them a little bit sarcastically. He says, already you have all you want. 1 Corinthians 4. Already you've become rich. Without us, you've become kings. And now what he's referring to is this very real Christian teaching that they would be rich. They would have all of their needs satisfied. They were royalty. But they are misplacing it. They're trying to grab hold of that comfort and encouragement now. When what he's referring to is that this is an inheritance. Now is the time of labor and work and discomfort. You yourselves are appointed for things greater than you can even imagine, my friends. But for now you're appointed for work And surely much discomfort. There's much fruit to be gathered on the other side of that work. There's much good to do and much to be done. So gird up your loins. But there's more here. Let's look at this second command. Gird up your loins for what? Why? What are you supposed to do? God says to Jeremiah here in this text, Arise and speak to them all that I command you. His loins being girded, he stands And here is his calling. Speak what God has said. Speak what God has said. This is an awesome and weighty task to speak God's words. But I want you to notice what it is that Jeremiah is called to do. He is not merely called to speak God's word. What am I saying? Well, notice what he says. He says, speak to them all that I command you. Speak to them all. All that I command you. Everything that God commands him. That's what Jeremiah is to speak. You see, it's not difficult to speak a word from God, you know. It's not difficult. I could make a nice calendar out of God's words and sell it at a bookstore in downtown Portland or maybe even find its way into Starbucks or something like that. And people would walk by and say, Oh, that's so nice. That's really inspiring. I was recently in someone's uh, house and I saw a tiny little book. Um, and it was a little book of like prayers and meditations and nice, warm thoughts taken from scripture in a number of different places. And, um, the title of it was something like nice thoughts about God. It was written by the late Robert Shuler. And, uh, I thought to myself, this is the kind of book that would offend absolutely no one. Absolutely no one, because what he did is he went through the Word of God and he culled out things that were offensive. He found things that were not offensive, and he packaged it together and made a nice little book, nice thoughts from God. Maybe, perhaps, you've read the book, Jesus Calling, devotional books, Uh, it's not just a book anymore, it's a whole series of books, carries on a daily conversation between Jesus and the reader. Every thought in that book is somewhat warm, a little bit fuzzy. Occasionally the tone is ratcheted up a little bit to maybe like a level two intensity, you know, a little bit of tough love in it. And my friends, listen to me, you don't sell in our day and age You don't sell 35 million copies of a book, according to their website, that's how many it's sold, about the words of Jesus, if you're using the actual and exhaustive words of Jesus. But a few words from Jesus, a few thoughts from Jesus, some select thoughts from Jesus, you can become very rich. Friends, if we start producing books that sell 35 million copies and literally they have 81 spinoff products that go along with it. That's no joke. I counted them all right there. She sells 81 spinoff products from that book. There's even an app for your phone. I mean, you can literally adopt the Jesus Calling lifestyle if you want. If you sell a book that is that popular from the actual words of Christ and you sell 35 million copies you can be sure that we are living in a time of great fullness of the kingdom. That's not what I believe is going on there. The Bible itself is it's on the shelves. Probably about 250 million people in this country have a copy of the Bible. Or maybe their phones. It's not disturbing a vast majority of those people. They're just sitting there. Just sitting there. But we could walk into their home. We could pull the book off of the shelf. We could flip to five different places and never be invited into their home again. What makes speaking the Word of God a difficult task is speaking the whole word of God, speaking the whole word of God. This was in Acts chapter 20, how Paul understood the ministry of apostles and what he, what he wanted to press upon the elders there that came to him and met with him. And he reminded them, do you remember what I did with you? I spoke to you. I did not shrink away from speaking the whole counsel of God. As Luther said, if you preach the gospel in all aspects, with the exception of the issues which deal specifically with your time, you are not preaching the gospel at all. Jeremiah was called to stand and to say everything that God had said to him. We should do no less, and that's what got him into trouble. And that's why he had to gird up his loins and be ready, be ready for action but let's consider this third command now because what will come? What will come of this? Of course. What will come there back in the, around the year 600 BC? What comes today in 2021? If you have the same disposition as Jeremiah, it is of course trouble. The Lord knows this, but he exhorts his prophet and says, do not be dismayed by them. Do not be dismayed by them. And I'm going to take this whole remaining verses together and just remind you that because he takes this idea and he, kind of, he, he adds to it and he adds his promise to it which is an important point. This third command it says starting in the third part of verse 17 do not be dismayed before their faces lest I dismay you before them. For behold I have made you this day a fortified city and an iron pillar, and bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, against its princes, against its priests, and against the people of the land. They will fight against you. but you sh- They shall not prevail against you, for I am with you, says the Lord, to deliver you. So this is what Jeremiah can expect. They will fight against you. And make no mistake. In a purely physical level, psychological level, intellectual level, they outnumbered him. They they were stronger than him. And that's exactly what they would do. They would intimidate Jeremiah. They would do cruel things to him. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be put in stocks. He's going to be thrown into a cistern by Zedekiah during the siege He was abused continually. There's a plot against his life from his... He he did not come from a large town. It was a small town of priests, many relatives. There was a plot from his own kinsmen against his life to kill him. It is enough to intimidate most men. And I would say it's likely beyond the breaking point of most of us. I think that that ought to give us pause before we just kind of read over these things or just kind of keep reading. It's like, oh yeah, that's how we are supposed to be. We would likely break here. And I only say this in the sense, most do. Most do. What of that? Most people, when they are encountered with hardship, they back off. They back off, they walk away, they lessen the blow. We can see it all around us. They're saying things, they're saying things, they are saying things for decades. Ethical statements from their pulpits, with their pens, in their papers, they're saying things, they're saying things, and suddenly there's an uproar, and they just kind of, I guess I'm not going to say that anymore, it's getting me into trouble. All around us. All around us. But God commands Jeremiah, and he says the same thing to us. Do not be dismayed by them. To give in to fear and intimidation betrays a lack of faith and a lack of the fear of God. So in other words, do not be dismayed by them, Jeremiah, What you ought to be intimidated by is the Lord. That is the one whom you are to fear. God is saying to Jeremiah, in effect, you don't fear them, I will give you something to be afraid of. God is the one that we are to fear. The fear of man always, always brings a snare. But there's more going on here. And I want to break this down just a little bit more as we kind of move towards towards the end here. And consider this. We live in difficult times. Many around us are girding up the loins. They're getting ready. They're preparing for difficult times. There's a kind of person who sees this and says, Well, fine. If that's how they're going to be, I will double down on my preparations. I will store up my ammo. I will take my jiu-jitsu classes. I refuse to be intimidated by them. I've heard that there's a certain kind of training that special forces undergo so as not to break if they are captured. I, like many of you, have been inspired by stories like the 300 Spartans who held the pass the springs of Thermopylae against a hundred times, against a thousand times their numbers, and they held the pass. And there's a plaque there that commemorates them and says, tell the Lacedaemonians, that's their, the land they come from, that here we lie, we were obedient to their laws, and that's inspiring to us. And we, we have this idea like, well, we need to, we need to double down in our preparations. And like those Spartans, we need to become much more, militant in our preparations and thinking and listen I think this is all inspiring and it's worth absolutely it's worth our consideration the times we live in and how we are to prepare and what is necessary of us what we might be called to do absolutely we are called to do that but there's more to this here than that there is more to this I want to remind you that he's calling him to something more not a mere preparation for difficulty. This is what Jesus taught his disciples in Matthew chapter 10. They're going to face a very similar circumstance to Jeremiah. He's calling, he's sending them out to preach. Beware of men. He says, they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. You will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake and bear witness before them and the Gentiles. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Do you hear the similarities? They will fight against you. They are going to fight against you. But Jesus says to them, the one who endures to the end will be saved. And then he says this, have no fear of them. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. What you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. And so you see, I just want to remind you that there is sometimes found among people who are posturing themselves in preparation for difficult times, there is still a fear of men that can be found even in that. We are called to something higher. It may involve preparation, storing up some food, some 9mm ammo, whatever it takes to be ready for these times, but it is certainly more than that. Jesus goes on, fear him, not them, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. If you are to be faithful in these times, it's going to require more than just preparation. It's going to require the fear of God. It's going to require the fear of God. That is the person who will endure to the end. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, I'm reminded of Peter and the other apostles. We will die with you. And they meant it. A cohort of Jews and Romans come to arrest Jesus. And Peter, acting like Special forces man pulls out a sword and is ready to face them and goes at them. If anyone in scripture had a mindset like, I will do whatever it takes, I am prepared to face difficulty with you, Jesus, it was him. It was him. He was ready to go. But he was not ready for what happened next. And a few verses later, he is crumbling before a slave girl. Even the toughest men have their breaking points. They do. In the second century, a Roman governor named Pliny wrote to the emperor Trajan to discuss matters of state. And we have many of these letters still. They contain some references to Christians. It's one of the earliest references to Christians uh, in the world, literally. Early historical record. He dealt at some length with how to try to turn them away from Christianity. It was a concern of his. He doesn't particularly hate uh, Christianity. He finds it repulsive, um, but he's simply like, "I, I I need wisdom as to how to deal with this. Uh, We obviously can't be turning away from the gods. We'll come under judgment. So what do I do? And he notes to Trajan that many of the Christians, many of the Christians, all it took for them is the threat of death. The threat of death. And they'll swear off Christianity. They'll walk away. And it's enough to read these letters to break your heart. To think of all these Christians that were baptized, were following the Lord, and the face of trouble, the face of persecution, they just, I'm out, I'm out. And Trajan, giving him counsel back, says, don't go after them, don't be too hard on them, just threaten them. Perhaps that will be enough for most of them to uh, turn away. So it's tragic, but that, that is the reality throughout church history enough to break your heart. What was true in those people is they were like the the seed that had been scattered, grew up among thorns, and when trials and difficulties on account of the Word of God, it, it ceased to bear fruit. It ceased to bear fruit. My friends, prepare yourselves for action. Take up the whole counsel of God. Cling to it. Demand it from this pulpit. Demand it. Long for it. Hunger for it. Be those kinds of Christians that from cover to cover, you say to yourself, I'm not going to be ashamed of these things regardless of what culture says is acceptable or unacceptable. But know that it is not going to be sheer willpower and simply becoming tougher mentally or physically stronger or saying, I will not be intimidated by them. But set yourself upon the Lord to fear Him. Look to Him. We must fear God rather than man. That is how the apostles prepared themselves. When they were pulled in before the Sanhedrin, we must fear God Rather than man. If you are determined to fear the Lord, consider then what He will do for you. Knowing your weakness, He will make you a fortified city. You see, the armies are going to come from the north and they're going to set up their thrones in front of Jerusalem and exercise judgment. And in turn, the men of Judea are going to assailed Jeremiah as if he was a city. Now, their city is going to fall before the armies of the north. But God says, I will make you a fortified city, an iron pillar and bronze walls against the whole land. They will fall. You will stand. And that is exactly what the Lord does for Jeremiah throughout his life. He makes him... To stand. He stands with him. He says, For I am with you, declares the Lord. And if the Lord is with you, nothing can overcome you. You are invincible if the Lord is with you. You are invincible. The servant of the Lord is immortal and invincible. At the end of his life, Paul, facing death, he doesn't know when, he doesn't know how, but sitting in a prison, writing to Timothy, says to him, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. And when I read that, I think, safely? He will bring you, Paul, safely into his heavenly kingdom? Will he really? Paul would lose his head. That doesn't sound very safe. But yes, this is, this is his word. This is true. Paul was delivered safely into his kingdom in the same way that Stephen was delivered safely into the kingdom. The Lord stood with these men. The Lord strengthened them. They did not deny the Lord They testified. They had strength in those moments to resist the evil one. Even to show mercy to his persecutors. That took amazing strength for Stephen. To show mercy and to pray for the forgiveness of those who were stoning him. But the Lord stood with him and strengthened him. Paul, Stephen, these men were made into fortresses. Hear me now in this final moment. Do this. Store up ammo, store up food, store up money. That's fine advice for troubled times. It's fine. But listen to me. If you believe through your own craftiness and preparations that you will stand in the evil day, you're sorely mistaken. Jeremiah stood only because the Lord was with him. All of his stored up food, all of his preparations, everything came to nothing when he was thrown into a cistern. Where will you be then when it's stripped away and he was a fortress even there in the bottom of that cistern? Fear God and you will have nothing else to fear. Amen? Amen. Soli Deo Gloria. May God be glorified in the preaching of his word.
0: There are two approaches to the Lord's table that are common in our evangelical churches. Both, I believe, can miss the mark. The first approach is when we too casually come to the table and we thoughtlessly go through the motions. To come in this way is to miss the enormous gravity of the grace that is present when we are welcomed to the table of the Lord. The Eucharist, another word for the Lord's Supper, is a Greek word, which means thankfulness or gratefulness. A careless, unthankful attitude is completely inappropriate here. We are being fed by Jesus with his body and his blood, and our only response ought to be deep gratitude. While the first way is clearly wrong, the second way we can miss the mark is much more subtle because it rightly treats the table as sacred and worthy of our theological care and attention. The second view is that eating the bread and drinking the wine, a very natural response to hungering and thirsting for righteousness, ought to be accompanied with something more than a thankful childlike faith. It's common for churches to require someone to have what they consider a credible and theologically sound profession of faith before being admitted to the table. That may even be the conviction of some of you here, and if it is, it's a long-held belief. Much of church history has held that. Some go further and require that profession of faith to be examined and approved by the session or the elders of the church. Some even say membership in the church is a requirement, or maybe even a letter from other known believers or churches attesting to one's faithfulness as a Christian. All this in order to come to the table. And this approach is in some ways noble because it genuinely seeks to protect the table from those who would come in an unworthy manner. And that is noble. But this can sometimes also descend into legalistic box checking. So we should think of the Lord's table not in a legalistic or a careless way, it should be approached more like a family meal. When you come to the table in your own home, you are expected to have the proper manners and not to come carelessly or rudely. But also, you're not really required to prove your fidelity to the family prior to eating. If you bear the name Smith and you are sitting at the Smith's family table, you're in. Imagine the Smith's family not allowing the toddler to eat dinner because she could not articulate what it meant to be a Smith. Likewise, if you bear the name of Christ, you belong at his table, whether you can articulate why you belong or not. Here at Christ Covenant Church, we follow what we are convicted has been an ancient practice of the church. All those who have been been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit bear the name of Christ and are therefore welcome at his table. If you can profess faith, then you well should. This is a time for self-examination, a time to reflect upon the piecemeal that is before us. But also remember that when you come today, it's not only an intellectual exercise. In fact, it's not at all. It's It's not an intellectual exercise in which we remember and think about the right things, theological things. The only real requirement is your connection to Jesus in the first place, and to be hungry and thirsty for his righteousness. So bring your appetite. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Come and welcome to Jesus. So the charge is this. As we go back out into the world, as we come come out of the heavenlies, out of the heavenly Mount Zion and back out into the world, expect there to be trouble. But if you've girded up your loins, expect that even the trouble you face, if it's done with God, is better than than no trouble without God gird up your loins, and be courageous for his kingdom. Now receive the benediction from Psalm 128, verses 5 and 6. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.